In the meantime, we are continuing our study through the book of Isaiah. We're in chapters 46 and 47 this week. Um, so go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we do have some available over by the sound booth, so you can grab one of those and, and turn to, uh, to the Isaiah 46 and 47. If you don't own a Bible, then we want you to just keep that and take it home with you. Last week we learned that um, from our verse, from chapters 44, 45, that God is a God who speaks. We see that all throughout Scripture. That's what Scripture is. It's God's spoken word. Amen. So five times we heard Isaiah begin his prophetic announcements last week that thus says the Lord. There's a string of statements that come from God Himself that He's speaking authoritatively through His, his prophet Isaiah. And he continues to speak, as we just said, through his word, the Bible, today to us. And it's all captured here. And the message that he wanted Israel and all of the world to hear in those pronouncements is that he alone is God. He's the all-powerful, authoritative, rightful sovereign of the universe. Right? He created the cosmos. He created the universe. Not just the world, but all that we see and all that we are attempting to see up in the galaxies above us. And also the depths of the sea. All that he's created even things that we don't see. He determines reality. He defines nature and the purpose of His world and the purpose of people. And He does it all by His holy and wise counsel. Right? He initiates His purposes and plans and He fulfills them by His divine decree. And what He says He will do. And um, what that should invoke in us or evoke in us is joy, for the joy of God's people. And should have evoked joy in Judah. But we see that God had revealed this to them, that He would at last deliver them from the exile in Babylon, but they weren't joyful. They weren't proclaiming God's excellencies. He had been faithful to them, and He, and he was steadfast in His love for them, and that He was going to deliver them through Cyrus, the, the, this Persian king, this pagan king. But that was a pill that was just too large for them to swallow, right? From their limited perspective, it didn't really make any sense. They were looking for the Davidic king that was going to come from within their ranks, within the nation of Judah, within the nation of Israel. And so they challenged God's authority, to, that he, his authority to act however he chooses to act in his world and for his people. And today we're going to see that God is going to challenge their unbelief once again. He's going to proclaim, at the same time, judgment on Babylon, the one that's, that's holding them captive. Um, so Israel's salvation, we're going to see, is simultaneous with Babylon's destruction. So redemption and destruction are two sides of the same coin. So um, we're going to look at this morning's chapters, 46 and 47, and I've divided them conveniently by chapters into just two points this morning. This doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter of a message, but it's just going to be a two longer points. But chapter 46... We're going to see stooping idols and the supremacy of God. And then in chapter 47, shameful and certain destruction for Babylon. So let's turn now to chapter 46 as I read from the Word of God this morning. Bel bows down and Nebo stoops. Your idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me, 
and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes him into a god. Then they fall down and they worship. They lift up to their shoulders, they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one carries it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient things to things not done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring righteousness, my righteousness near. It is not far off. And my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. So many of us are probably familiar with the Ten Commandments. It used to be probably even more familiar than it is now in our secular society. But um, after God had saved His people from slavery to Egypt, He brings them out and He gives them this law, which in one sense reveals Himself. It reflects who he is, his nature, but it's also this list of commands to live by, how they are to live in light of the salvation that God has provided by his grace. It's use, um, we can see it defined in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 4. If you know them, it's the second of the commandments. You shall not have any gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that is under the water of the earth. And interestingly, in, in, by God's providence and, and by His wisdom and by His just masterful use of communication, He reveals that same, uh, that same command to us in poetic format. And he, and he goes on to actually explain as to reason why we are to worship Idols and why it's wrong. Isaiah, Isaiah here, we see him point, painting this picture, this portrait, right, of this, these gods, Babylonian gods, the gods of Bel and the, the, the god of Nemo. They were the two prominent gods of Babylon during the time. And Bel was also called Bel Marduk, or just Marduk. And Nemo, or Nebo, I should say, not Nemo, not like the cute little fish Nemo. But Nemo, D- Nebo, the this, this son of this Bel Marduk, was a patron god of Borsippa, which is one of the Babylonian provinces. And he was uh, the god of interpretation and divine wisdom. And they would typically be paraded together during New Year and it, as a way of celebrating this New Year. And actually what Nebo would do is, is he would write that year's fortune, what they were to expect to come from the New Year, on these... These tablets of destiny that were in uh, that were in uh, the place where he was displayed, but here the scene is different than that, right? Isaiah is almost like superimposing these two images. Have you seen those those images, the superimposed images of like a, um, an area in Europe currently with like World War II soldiers coming through, superimposed over each other? That's that's kind of what Isaiah is doing here, literarily, right? He's he's they have in their minds this pronouncement, this parade of these gods, but, but now he's showing a different way in which they're being carried off. And that's not of one of exaltation, but one of humiliation. 
So rather than being prayed in honor, these idols are now laying on their sides and they're being carried away and they're distressing the backs of these poor animals that they're on. And their idols, these, these idols of these, of these gods, the, the, the idols themselves were not the gods. They were just a physical representation of these gods that they worshipped. But what we're seeing here is that what's true of these physical idols is true of the ones that they're, of the gods themselves that they're representing. Right? They've been defeated. We're seeing them here laying on their sides in defeat, knocked down from their altars of worship, and now they're being transported, it says here, into captivity. Right? They're not good for anything because they can't even save themselves, let alone the ones that are worshiping them. That's the point of this, this message. That's the point of this imagery that Isaiah is using. Instead of just be, of being useful and powerful, they're nothing but a burden. And so this declaration of Babylon's humiliation, that's essentially what we're seeing here, is resulting from God's judgment. Babylon's collapse is inevitable. And it's just, this is just the beginning of the bad news. We're going to see it in more uh, laid out and expounded upon in the next chapter, when we get to chapter 47, our next point. But Isaiah is using this imagery to teach Israel and us today that, that we should obey God's command in Exodus 23, not, not to fall down before false idols, for two immediate reasons. First, they're, bur- they're, they're powerless, as we just said, but they're also burdensome. So the gods of Babylon are powerless because, well, they actually don't even really exist. They're fake. They're just this byproduct of humans' imagination that they use to, in rejection against their creator. And they're meant to fill this void, this, this creaturely craving, this longing to worship something, to worship anything that we can. The scripture teaches that we are created to worship God who made us. right? But because of Adam's rebellion in the garden... We bear the curse, the curse of sin. All of his offspring, every human being that's born into the world is born into sin. And we bear that curse on us physically, so our bodies break down, right? They, they age, eventually they, they will die. But also that sin permeates further than just our, our physicality. It goes down into our, our hearts and our motivations and our attentions and our thoughts and our decision-making, and we, we begrudge the God in our hearts that created us. And we, instead, we suppress the truth of the knowledge of His glory and of His rightful reign over His universe. And so what we do is we build idols instead. And so what's an idol? We've, we've talked about this. This has been a theme throughout this, the, our, our, uh, our study of Isaiah. But put another way than we've done before is that it's anything that we, we essentially build our lives around and, and w- that we assign it, it ultimate value Above all else. And we allow these, these idols that we've created, that we build up, that we stake our hopes on, to shape our thoughts, to, to shape our decisions and our dreams and, and how we spend our money and where we assign our identity and our relationships. And, and what they're doing essentially is they're just only just really distracting us from the reality, right? They're distracting us from the reality of the fact that we are sinners that reject the God who made us the God who actually provides life and fulfillment and joy and purpose. So these idols are not in a, in invaluable, but God himself is the invaluable one. Right? He's priceless and he's glorious. And these idols, anything that we, that we place over the rightful lordship of Christ in our lives will inevitably, inevitably disappoint us. 
They're going to collapse. They're, they can't stand up under the weight of the trials that we go through in our lives. And, and that's when that happens, we finally realize that they actually are powerless to save us. They can't deliver us from hardship or, or answer the, the, the hard questions that we have and sustain that, the, the initial high that they might give us. And they can't protect us. In fact, all they do is just provide more weight and burden on our lives. Idols we see here are burdensome. They, they take a lot of maintenance. right? Whole religions are, are, are built around keeping our idols and our false gods happy and satisfied. Right? A lot of time and money is, and energy is just wasted. Wasted on these fake gods. Look at verses 6 and 7. Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down, they worship. They, they lift it up on their shoulders and they carry it. They set it into its place and it stands there. It can't move from its place if one cries to it does not answer or save him from trouble. We see here, look at all that went into producing these idols. Right? The, this, this wealthy elite finances this project. They give and they provide this gold and silver that, that they possess. And, and they, they use only the most valuable materials and metals, right? And then they hire this goldsmith, and, and he's the one who's going to mold and melt these materials and shape them into, into these idols, maybe even putting them over wood. Think of all the wasted money spent and the wasted ingenuity, engineering the specifications for these objects and the logistics, right, of, of, of transporting them and, and the force that's, that's needed to be exerted to lift them up to their high places on these pedestals. And in the end, the cries, the prayers, the chants of all those worshipers, they're all in vain. The, the, these gold and silver figurines, they can't hear. They can't respond. They're blind, deaf, they're mute. And the burdens that are being brought to them, they, they can't alleviate those burdens. They, they, they just they remain burdens on the people. And in fact, they, they become heavier. They, they contribute to more burden because now there's this sense of de- devastation or, or de- depression or, or hopelessness that they can't answer. So one of the questions for us to look at this morning as we relate to what we're hearing here is, is how are we using the gifts and talents that we've been given, that God's given us, right? Are we wasting them on elevating ourselves or, or making idols, propping up idols in our lives? Or, or are we good stewards of the gifts that God has given us and we're using them for His glory and the building up of His church, right? And we see in verse 5 is this transition verse. And after describing the manufacture of these idols, God uses this rhetorical question to make it clear that there's no competition for him, right? There's just no comparison. God is the incomparable, the unrivaled, and he's matchless. He's, he's not immobile, right, like, like these other ones, these other false idols, these figurines. He's omnipresent. He's not powerless. He's sovereign. He's not a burden. In fact, he's actually been carrying the burden of his people throughout history, throughout their history. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to the great hairs, 
I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and save. Do you see God's grace in these, in these words, right? He, he's commanding them to listen to His word and He's addressing His remnant, the, those in Israel who would survive the exile, reminding them that unlike the idols of Babylon who failed to carry them, He's their safety. He's their protection, security. He's the one that provides for them. He's been there from their inception. In fact, He's been there from before their birth, He says. And says He's going to continue to carry them all the way through their old age. He's going to safely transport them to the glory of His salvation. His protection, His blessing on Israel is is constant, even when they are unfaithful to Him. So He's not going to abandon them. He's saying to them, these words of grace are, he's reminding them he's, he's not going to allow them to be utterly destroyed, but he will continue to provide. He's going to continue to protect and guide his people. A remnant will always remain, as he's saying. Do you realize, do we realize, as we look at this passage, that we can never outgrow our dependence on God? Right? God has carried Israel from their inception all the way through to their salvation, and he does the same thing for his church, his people. Corporately, yes, the church together, but also we can individualize it as well and, and, and talk about it at the personal level, that each one of us belongs to Christ, and we're all deeply dependent on God's grace. And the grace that God used to, to save you by the outworking and pouring out of his Holy Spirit, the same grace he's going to use to sustain us through life. And all that goes on during our life. And ultimately, God's going to use His grace to bring us to glory. So are we humbly resting in that truth, in that reality, relying on God's grace in our life? Or maybe there's another way of asking it to look outside of our own personal experience, but what about the rest of us that are around? Are, are we, do we recognize the need for God's grace in other people's lives, and are we extending that grace to them? Right? Are we also praying for God's grace to be on the lives of people that we know need it? After all, we've needed it as well, ourselves. Amen? Amen. So in the ancient world, the destruction of these gods of these nations was synonymous with the destruction of the nation itself. Right? They, they went hand in hand. Right? Then when a nation was defeated, so too was the God defeated. When the God of that nation was defeated, so too was the nation. It meant that their gods... In this instance, Babylonian gods had failed to save them. and They were destroyed, or at least these gods were brought into captivity, if, if not utterly destroyed. Sometimes they would be welcomed into the, you know, the gods of, of that new nation that take them over and, and added to the, to the rest of the gods that were worshipped. So if nothing else, they'd at least be brought into captivity or destroyed. And, and Babylon was viewing Judah in the same way. that they, they, Because they had destroyed Judah, or at least they brought them into captivity, right? their God had failed them. Their God was no God at all, or just another God that they can add to their panoply of gods. But in reality, we see it, God is not like the gods of Babylon or any other neighboring gods. Right? He's not even just superior over these other gods. He's the sole sovereign of the universe. The other gods are, are false gods. They don't exist. And even though Israel was still in, in exile, 
their God, the one true God, had not abandoned them. He was still on the throne, and he was still orchestrating his plans to save them. God is using his prophet Isaiah here to exhort his people in the midst of their exile to trust him. They can trust him for all the same reasons they've trusted him in the past. As we, looked, as we saw last week, the shock of Cyrus' identity was just too difficult for them to, ha- too difficult for them to handle. And their knee-jerk re- reaction was just to completely challenge God and to, to n- not believe what God had told them would be true, that he would raise up Cyrus. But by God's grace, that belief can be, unre- can, you know, can be remedied. It can, it can, there's a solution to that unbelief. God doesn't just give them a suggestion as to what they can do to maybe offset a little bit of their disbelief, but He gives them a command to remember, to recall, review the past, how God has intervened on the, in their behalf in the past. He's telling them, let my triumphs serve as a trustworthy anchor for you, as a, a firm foundation under the current circumstances you find yourselves in. And we can stand confidently upon God's past acts, His his heroic deeds, which all of them together marvelously display His godness, His goodness, His godness, His his righteousness, His divine power, His glory, His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness, mercy, and grace, and the list can go on. And we are people who also need reminding in our day as well, right? We're forgetful, we're dense. Sometimes we often miss how God's working around us or even amongst us or even within us because of sin that's in our life or because we're just, there's so much noise going on around us that we're paying attention to. And the best thing we can do is to just continue to repeat the truth to ourselves. Right? It, takes pact- it takes lots of practice and effort. But by the Spirit's power in the community of faith that's around us, right? God's church we can condition ourselves to remember the gospel and we can create habits that are going to prompt us to reflect on the gospel. Right? Meditating on the gospel, on the good news of what Christ has done for hopeless sinners is essentially the same thing as, as meditating on the glorious nature and the work of Christ himself. Pursuing him and applying the gospel to our lives, that's what's going to reinforce our belief. That's what's going to strengthen our faith. And that's what's going to drive us to worship God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. The Holy Spirit can, and He does, sometimes spontaneously, just open our eyes to the glories of Christ in, in moments that we just didn't expect for it to happen. But at the same time, we, we ought to put ourselves in the way of grace. As Jonathan Edwards put it, we should endeavor to promote spiritual appetites by laying yourselves or ourselves in the way of its allurement, being allured by God's grace. There are many books that encourage this discipline, the the, the spiritual disciplines, and it's a way that we can grow in grace and knowledge of of Jesus Christ. And I could probably give you many uh, recommendations, but one that has been useful for me recently that I've looked at is David David Mathis' book, Habits of Grace, because he, he really just makes it very easy by categorizing the spiritual disciplines into three different categories. God's voice, God's ear, and God's people. Right? God's voice being God's word and listening to God's voice 
as we meditate and read Scripture. God's ear are praying to God and reaching out to Him. And God's people, the fellowship of other believers together. And these are three effective ways that God uses the Spirit to discipline our hearts and our minds to, to continue to pursue Christ. Right? And getting back to the text, God's going to repeat this promise that He is going to accomplish His purposes. Again, we need needing repetition. His, his plans and purposes are firm, they're absolute, they're unchanging. As we actually just sang, God's unchanging. God will not change. He will save Judah. He's going to bring his bird of prey, this man of counsel. We've already looked at who that is, Cyrus. He's given us his name. And he's going to come in and he's going to swoop down, essentially, like a bird of prey, right? As this predatory bird, think of like an eagle or a hawk, it's swooping down, grabbing its prey and its talons. And God's word is as good as done. Because he's spoken it, it's going to happen. It's guaranteed to take place. But God's not only going to save Judah, not going to save them just from Babylon, from the military might of Babylon and their political clout, but He's actually going to save them from themselves as well. He's going to save them from their sin. Judah's not only physically hostage to, to Babylon, but he's, they're also being held hostage in their hearts and their minds. Right, look at verse uh, 12 and 13 here. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It's not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. It's the second time that God's telling him to listen up. We heard him say it already in verse 3. Listen up. It's like waking them up from, from their slumber, from their sleep. They had resisted God's plans and they, they had distanced themselves from Him. But, but amazingly, God's plan included overruling their rebellious hearts. God's going to save them by bringing His righteousness to bear on their sin. He's going to override their sin with His righteousness so they can justifiably, not by any act of their own, but they can be called God's beloved, God's glory. The same is is true for us today as well. We have the advantage of seeing the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan for Israel and for the whole world. We see that in Jesus Christ. Our sin makes us enemies of God. It separates us from His holy presence. His presence that was, by the way, originally meant to be a good thing. Something to be enjoyed. A blessing. Because in Him are life and joy and rest and peace. All these things are in the presence of God. But sin has has turned His presence into something that is a danger and a terror for us because we're enemies of God. And as enemies, we we deserve to be banished from His pure and glorious presence. And not only just banished from His presence, but we ought to receive the due penalty for our sin, the punishment for our sin. But graciously through Christ, God overcomes that sin, that barrier to His blessed presence and has saved salvation from His wrath, His presence of His wrath. The good news is that Jesus came to earth. He lived the perfect, righteous life, sinless life. He died on the cross in our place, and He rose from the dead. And when we trust Christ, God exchanges our sin for His righteousness with Jesus' righteousness, His perfection. And then we're, as we looked at last week, justified, we're declared righteous. Again, by no work of our own, 
but by what Christ has done, by his imputing of his righteousness, meaning that he credits his righteousness to us. And now we can be accepted by God and we can stand in his presence. So we are made positionally righteous. Obviously, we're not practically righteous. God's continuing to work that through us. We're not perfect. We will be made perfect when he returns. But in Christ, the burden of trying to earn our righteousness is alleviated. Serving these false gods and idols is taxing. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of wasted energy to try to justify ourselves. And we can rest, though, knowing that our sins are forgiven and that we will enjoy the ultimate blessing of being with Christ, who doesn't just tolerate us, by the way. He doesn't just make it so that we can be in his presence and keep us in a corner somewhere. Our text says in verse 13 that God calls Israel my glory. Right? He saves his people so that he can delight in them. God wants us to be with him. But for that to take place, it means that he also must destroy the enemies. He must defeat his enemies. Redemption for Israel also necessitates Babylon's destruction. So let's turn to our second part of, the, uh, of our lesson this morning. Shameful and certain destruction of Babylon in Isaiah chapter 47. So let's, let's read about this. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of the hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember your end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment. In one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps they will maybe, perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars... And at the new moons, make known what shall come to you. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves in the power of the flame. No coal for warning, warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. And that's how it ends. Although Israel is very much still in earshot here, this is 
Now God turning His attention, He's turning his, to address Babylon. Although the imagery is a little bit different from the beginning of chapter 46, there's still one theme in common at the beginning of these, both these two chapters, and that's humiliation. Right? These toppled idols of, of chapter 46 is now being replaced by this destitute and this, this disheveled woman that's just sitting in the dust and this woman is obviously a stand-in for Babylon. Her, her story of public shame and humiliation is the story of Babylon's destruction as well. And instead of tales of rags to riches, which you all love to, to watch and, and to read, it's one of riches to rags. Right? We watch this, this pampered mistress of the nations, this one who, is, who has seduced and it has allured the attention of the other neighboring nations, brought them under their control, is now falling to disgrace. She's only known the life of luxury, it seems, but is now being thrown into this life of servitude. Look at verses 1 and 2. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit in the ground with, without a throne or daughter of Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind flour. Put off your veil, strip off your robe, and cover your legs. Pass through the rivers." Isaiah is using Babylon here and uh, Chaldea interchangeably because Babylon is essentially the name of the nation itself and Chaldea was the name of the land that they, uh, that they possessed. And Babylon is called this virgin daughter at this point because at, at this point in their history they have not been toppled or defeated by any neighboring military force. This woman, you see, is obviously affluent, you know, lived a life of ease. But now this life is going to be replaced with hardship and, just, and bone-bruising labor. Her, her high-end wardrobe is now gone. In fact, she's completely humili- humiliated by her nakedness. And this depiction of passing through the rivers is an allusion to, be, to maybe being dragged across rivers into exile, the same way they had dragged Israel into exile. And the point is that God's going to dethrone Babylon from this, this high position, from this high status on the world stage and strip Babylon from its glory. It's going to expose their shame that lies underneath all these fancy dressings. And the seducer of the nations will, with all of her power and prestige, it's all just simply a facade. They're frauds. And God, who is Israel's Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is going to judge them for their sin. Three titles here are used of God. And they're all denoting a different aspect of God's retribution against Babylon. First, he's, he's the Redeemer. He's acting on behalf of the people, Israel, His people. He's going to save them from the clutches of, his, of, of their enemy. He's also the Lord of hosts. He's this, this warrior king who's going to employ the power of his of his, his armies, his angelic armies, against Babylon. And he's also called here, the, calls himself the Holy One of Israel, who acts in his perfect holiness in all that he does. And his righteousness is being enacted as he accomplishes his will. And what he does is right and good. And he's silencing Babylon, right? He says, I sa- you're going to be sit in silence. I'm not going to have any more influence in the world. You're not going to give out any more orders. You're not going to be boasting anymore. There's no more, no more propaganda that's going to come out of the Babylonian machine. Instead, they're going, to, they're going to be shut away in darkness, in dungeon of defeat. 
It's a strong language. And it's, it's denoting, it's depicting this complete and utter destruction that God's going to bring about as He dominates Babylon, who's standing against Him. But God's also here announcing their role has come to an end, that they were somehow used. They didn't rise to power by their own strength, but, but God had permitted it for a time and for a purpose. And God reveals this reason in verses 6 and 7. He says, I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hands. You showed them no mercy. On the age you made your oak exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever. So you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Here God's revealing that Babylon was, was used to discipline Judah for their arrogance against God, against their God. But God hadn't entirely handed them over to Babylon, right? It was only for temporarily reasons. It was just temporary for a short time. And it was ultimately for Israel's own good. If you remember earlier, when we look back to chapter 39, which is the first part of Isaiah, we're in the second part, starting in, verse, in chapter 40. But before that, we saw how God had, had uh, used kings, the king Hezekiah especially, as a way of, of solidifying Israel's uh, role and prominence and protection. He had protected them from these invading armies of Assyria, right? But we look back to chapter 39. We remember, if you remember, King Hezekiah, after all that had happened and God had saved them, became sick to the point of death. But God had miraculously and mercifully healed his sickness and granted him 15 more years to live. And then after that, he welcomes these envoys that are coming in from Babylon, coming into Jerusalem. And Hezekiah had, again, previously been sick, and they wanted to find out the news of what had happened. Instead of pointing to God and proclaiming His goodness and His grace, His favor on Israel, he prayed to them throughout the kingdom, showing them, showing them national treasury. And for his pride, God told him, that Judah was, was going to go into exile to Babylon. Hezekiah himself wouldn't experience this humiliation, but his descendants would. And ironically now, God is using, had used the people that Hezekiah had welcomed and trusted to now discipline Judah so that, that they would turn their, themselves back to their God. God used Babylon as the rod of his correction for his people. But Babylon wasn't some neutral agent. They weren't some morally neutral agent. They were pagans who were driven by their sinful appetites. They showed no mercy to Judah, right? They were like the Cobra Kai of their day. No mercy, right? Strike first, strike hard, no mercy. But God had, had providentially used their sinful ways to, to serve His greater purpose. That's, that's what we're, we're being shown here in the Scripture. But God was now going to now turn the tides on Babylon for their wickedness. The reign of terror had come to an end. And God was going to hold them accountable for the way they had mistreated His people. But it's not just for the way that they had mistreated His people. This goes beyond that. Because we see here that behind all their heinous actions, they were actually elevating themselves to a sort of divine status. That, that was Babylon's real sin. Blasphemy, making themselves into God. 
And rather than recognizing God's power, they exalted themselves and, 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 and they doubled down. They persisted in their rebellion. And then they see they flaunted their arrogance against God's rightful rule over, over his world, living in luxury and, 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 and worshiping at the, uh, the altar of intellectualism. You see in verse 8 and 9, we get a glimpse of their self-indulgent lifestyle. They were hedonists, right? They, they thought that they could indefinitely protect their prosperity and they could protect themselves from pain. That's the, that's the great sin, right, of, of hedonism is, is pain. And they serve as a model for their surrounding nations by the way they lived. They, they were so sure of their own strength and wisdom and they were so deceived by the fame that they were receiving, the accolades from the neighboring nations that they actually believed that they were godlike. Right? Look at verses 8 and 10. The same, the same uh, verbiage is used. You say in your heart, I am, and there's no one besides me. But wait, is, isn't, that, isn't that what Yahweh has been saying about himself the past few chapters? Right? That he is the self-exalted, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty God. That he is, I am, and there's no one besides me. See, they deceive themselves in thinking that, that their luxurious lifestyle, by having all these things and stuff and luxury, made them like gods. They believed that they could enjoy the society of pleasure without any fear of, of poverty or pain. But it says here that God is going to give them over to their worst fears of poverty and pain. He continues with this metaphor of this, of this woman, right? This woman... And the devastation that's, that's going to come their way. This metaphor of one saying that Babylon is going to experience a loss of children and widowhood, which was a, a terrible thing to have undergone as a woman in that day that, that depended on security and protection from a husband and from children. There's nothing to protect them now from, this, from God's judgment. All that they had built for themselves that they could escape and they could live under it's going to come crashing down. And so let's, let's relate for a, another moment. Let's put a pause there and just ask, are, are we driven by material pleasures and comforts? There's nothing necessarily wrong and nice thing. I'm not saying that. But do we prize them above all else? Right? Do, we, do we prize the wealth and things over godliness? And Jesus reminds us himself in Mark chapter 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world forfeit your souls. And that's, that's how high the stakes are, right? For pursuing pleasure over Christ, losing your soul. Another way that Babylon had elevated themselves to this godlike status was relying on their own knowledge, their worldly wisdom, even these magic enchantments, right? This is actually the signs of the zodiac and, and horoscopes that are still used today uh, that the Greek used were actually taken from Babylon, Babylon was the one who, who developed those. And they took this, this combination, they, they wedded together their, their astrology and their intellectualism, their intelligence, in, in a way to try to fortify themselves and create this culture that had no moral consequences. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. And you said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am, there is no one Besides me, the natural result of bowing to luxury and human intelligence and intellect is abject wickedness. 
And that's what we see Babylon doing. Their entire society became categorized by wickedness and a complete rejection of God. So they, they essentially made themselves like the prophet, the priest, and the king of their own religion. They claim that they are accountable to no one but themselves. And that's what it means by no one sees me. There's, there's no one auditing their books. There's, there's no third party. There's, there's no superior that's going to come and challenge them. But God reminds them that He is supreme and that He is going to level them. And when His judgment arrives, it's going to arrive suddenly, unexpectedly, they're not going to be able to rely on all the things that they could before. They can't rely on their charm. right? They can't manipulate or, or, or use some kind of negotiating skills and, to save them f- from, from the oncoming judgment. They, they can't use their riches to try to buy or to bribe their way out of disaster. Nothing they can do is going to prevent God's judgment. It's a judgment that they don't even see coming, it says here. And then it says God taunts them in verses 12-13. through 13. He tells them, to bring together all these astrologers, bring, bring about all your counselors, all the formulas that you've invoked and that you depend upon, all the things that you've been hiding behind, all the clever machinations that you developed and you relied on. You thought you could insulate yourself from divine judgment. You thought you could insulate yourself from military competition, promote prosperity. Bring it on, is what God's kind of saying. Bring it on. Let's see how they stack up. And God's here sarcastically encouraging them to, to keep staying the course. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep using your vain rituals and magic. All the things that you relied on that, fulfill, that you think are going to fulfill your, your potential, that are going to maximize your, your pleasure and safety, are utterly useless. And so they exhausted all their options. They've only tired themselves out here, it says in verse 13, while God continues to frustrate their plans. And all the instruments they employ against God are, are actually just nothing more than just kindling to the, to his, the fire of His judgment. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a welcome fire, like a warming fire, when your bones are cold and you sit around that fire and you feel the satisfaction, being warmed up, being all toasty and cozy. It's, it's God's all-consuming white heart wrath of His indignation that's getting poured out on them. It says, Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. There's no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with from your, before your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. They're scattering for all four winds to get away. There's no one to save you. We know from history that, and from God's word that Babylon did fall. It fell to Cyrus in 539. And God fulfilled this divine plan. Now he judged them. He judged this nation, and he also delivered his people. But although the nation of Babylon itself, this ancient nation, was defeated, the spirit of Babylon still remained. Not because God had failed, but in keeping with his wise and holy purposes, he has delayed Babylon's final destruction until Christ returns. In Scripture, Babylon is used as a symbol of this angry collective organization of, of humanity against God, this defiance against God. We see it in Psalm chapter 2. And that spirit, the desire to dethrone God, is still around us today, right? In the hearts of individuals, but also entire nations that defy God's sovereign rule over the universe. But the good news is God sent a better Savior than Cyrus to defeat Babylon, right? He alone has the power to slay the city of Babylon and all of its isles. In fact, 
Jesus Christ has already dealt the death blow to Babylon. Although we were shameful sinners, Jesus faced the ultimate humiliation on the cross when he bore the weight of our sin. By his cross and by his resurrection, his triumph over the grave, he simultaneously redeemed his people from captivity to sin and destroyed sin itself. And one day we will finally see the consummation of God's redemptive plan. It's going to be an amazing day when finally we see all the details that we had missed or misconstrued that of God's working, inner workings, all are finally going to make sense to us because we'll see how God wielded all of these things, His sovereign power to defeat Babylon and to save His people, His beloved people. Revelation chapter 18, we see a portion of the song that we're all going to sing together in glory. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and, pre- and prophets, for God has given judgment for you, for you against her. All who stood against Jesus and defined, defied the, the Redeemer, the Holy Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, finally collapse in defeat as, as easily as we saw these indefensible and inanimate idols at the beginning of chapter 46. So what God do you worship? That's the question this morning. Do you worship the unrivaled God of Israel who came to save sinners or, or the gods of your own imagination? The fake gods that, that can't save you but that lead us into actually inevitable destruction. So the, I plead for all of us is to turn to Christ that, to remember who He is for all those who are saints, to turn to Christ, live a meaningful, meaningful life of worship and devotion to Him now. Live in, t- in anticipation, right, of his, of his coming again, where finally we'll be in His presence. And when we're in His presence, we'll find, as Psalm, the psalmist says, fullness of joy and true pleasures, everlasting pleasures forevermore. Father, we thank You again for Your Word this morning and what You've taught Israel, in the past, you have also are continuing to teach us this morning. And we've seen, over the course of your work, an unfolding of your revelation, and we see its ultimate destination in Christ. So Lord, we, we, we think on that, and we pray that you would just continue to pound into our heads, into our hearts, the reality of your Lordship, and the reality of the, of the work of Christ in and through us by, the, by your Spirit. Lord, help us not to rely on ourselves pray that we would rely on your strength, that we'd find that you are the one who's carrying us ultimately from cradle to grave and, and into eternity when finally sin will be defeated, death will be defeated, and we'll worship you as the, the Savior and Lord of the universe in great joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.